Hope y'all are doing well. We're in the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts. We'll be in chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Um, let me pray, and then we will, um, which actually, I want to say one, one thing before we, pray, before we pray. Just as a reminder, I said it last week. I'm going to say it for a few weeks, just so we can remember, um, regarding Sunday, regarding Sunday being here. There's, there's a way to remember it. I, I, last week, I used three E's. Um, eager, expectant, early. That's, that's the goal for coming to church. Eager, expectant, early. Eager, you're coming. Eager, you're wanting to get here um, with an absolute resolution in your mind that I am happy to be here. I'm glad that church is on Sunday and I'm glad that, I'm, that I get to be a part of this. I'm expectant. I'm ex- coming, expecting for God to move. I'm expecting for God to do something in my heart. I'm expecting for God to do something in the heart of the church and early. It's, it's a huge benefit for you to make sure you get here at least 15 minutes ahead of time to be able to see other people, get ready. And then I've added a, a fourth E, um, every Sunday. Eager, expectant, early, every Sunday. Uh, imagine this. Imagine you, you're, you're going to your, your favorite show on Netflix and you just watch every fourth episode um, and, and you try to understand what's happening. Just watch episode four, episode one, episode four, episode seven, episode 11, episode 15, and you skip all the other ones. In the exact same way, the the putting together of each week of these sermons is in a a similar-ish way, and I would say more important, um, is being with your family, your church family each week, and then hearing how each one of the sermons that we're writing connect to each other and how they can edify your soul. So eager, expectant, early, every Sunday. That's the goal. I mean, I understand there's occasions here and there where you can't, but that should be your overall goal for Sundays. Um, So let me pray. And then we will uh, start at Acts chapter two, verse 14. I'll get us kind of caught up. Let's pray. God, I pray for this morning as we look into your word this wouldn't just be an exercise that we've done numerous times and we'll do again. And, but instead, Lord, each one of these times where we have the opportunity, the gift to be able to corporately look into your word with the filling of the spirit and the teaching of the spirit, that we would see these as amazing blessings that you've given to us. A time where we don't just read the Bible by ourselves, but corporately we as a family gather around your word and together we are recipients of the good news of Christ. And together we are challenged as a church to make disciples, challenged as a church to change in places and grow in places and make disciples better um, as as a community. And so I, I pray, Lord, that you would come now in power, much like you did in this particular text, where you poured out your spirit in verse 17 like a torrential rainforest rain that the Holy Spirit would come and God that we would be moved into action we pray this in Jesus name amen six weeks that's what it took it took six weeks he was an absolute changed man God can do similar things. God can accomplish amazing things through you far more than you think in six weeks. This unique six weeks I'm speaking of is where God worked a major miracle and it is shining brightly in the person of Peter. 
Six weeks is all it took. In that six weeks, God did a lot of stuff on his own. Not just in the person of Peter, but God did a lot of stuff. He accomplished much. Jesus died for sin. Jesus rose again. Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death. Jesus restored Peter. Jesus gave his disciples a mission. Jesus ascended into heaven. And Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And Jesus delivered the Holy Spirit. Now, God did a lot. But if you just look at the person of Peter, God had done a lot. But Peter, the six weeks of work that God had done also in Peter was shining brightly. Six weeks ago, Peter is cowering away when a tiny little girl asks him if he knew Jesus. No, I don't know him. Cusses and and, and runs. Six weeks later, another opportunity to be bold comes. People are saying, people are gathering all around. And people are saying, what's all this language stuff? How come that's going on? Oh, they're, they're, they're mocking them. They're accusing them of things that aren't true. They're saying they must just be drunk. And Peter doesn't cower away for, like he does from the little girl. But instead, instead, in verse 14 says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addresses, and I would say boldly, six weeks later, huge work has been accomplished in Peter. And I think, many could argue, um, that this is the second greatest sermon ever preached. First, of course, Sermon on the Mount. And so, if you aren't in your own life thinking, I'm just not happy with what's happening in my life right now. And it can happen in six minutes. In a short amount of time of six weeks, a massive change happens from Peter where he's running to where he's standing boldly, preaching the very first sermon ever preached of somebody that's been filled with the Spirit. And tremendous things happen. Now, if you read this sermon from verse, well, really kind of half of 14 until about verse 39, if you read the sermon, it takes about five to 10 minutes to read. But you shouldn't think that the sermon is only five to 10 minutes long. Luke is summarizing this sermon. He's summarizing the big points. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 40 after the sermon's over, Luke writes, and with many other words, he bore a witness. So Peter said a lot in this particular sermon and and, and Luke is summarizing it down for us. Uh, Remember, this was probably written several several years later. Um, So Peter preached a pretty long sermon. Luke summarizes it. um, And there were many other words. But what we're going to do is this. We're going to look at the sermon. And we won't be able to look at the entire sermon this week. So this is, this is part one. And I'll have part two next week of Peter's sermon. So today, we're going to look at verses 14 through 24. And then I'll do the second part of Peter's sermon um, next week. But the way we're going to look at it is maybe a little bit different. Um, these things that we're going to look at are the notes to Peter's sermon. But the, the way that we're going to note Peter's sermon is we're actually going to look at Peter himself. So the way that Peter's preaching is because of the things that have happened to him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of those things that have happened to him. By looking at his sermon, we're going to be able to see the things, and you're going to follow what I'm saying. You, we're going to see the things that have happened to Peter. 
And so the background that you need to know if you weren't here is verses one through 13. If, if you actually, if you look with me at verses, uh, at chapter one, we're gonna need to keep going back to this just for all of you that aren't here um, from week to week in verse eight, because verse eight is huge. But right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he looks at all the people uh, that, that are there and he says, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so you, you need to be able to be able to have this power. You don't have it right now, but it's crucial that you have it and you're gonna receive power. The, the Greek word is dunamis and we, we, we take our word dynamite from that. So it's, it's more than just dynamite, but it's, it's trying to highlight for us an amazing power that they're going to receive when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes, if you go into Acts chapter two, you see there's lots of tongues. And some people could say the, the, the coming of the Spirit is the implementation of tongues. And so tongues is the huge deal, but that's not the huge deal. And he tells us, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're gonna be witnesses, witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the power that comes gives them the ability to be witnesses or to fulfill what's happened, what Jesus said in Matthew 28, the ability to make disciples. And so we have arrived to chapter two, verse one, Pentecost, by the way, today is Pentecost Sunday. We're celebrating it. It's roughly this amount of time after the ascent, ascent, uh, resurrection, which we have reached today. Today is this day in history, if you will, some 2,000 years ago would be Pentecost. And so we've arrived to that day. And when Pentecost does arrive, they're all together in one place. And then suddenly there came in from heaven like a sound of mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they're sitting. And it divided tongues as of tongues of fire to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So here is now the promised power. They all have received the promised power. And then whenever they receive it, and I think it's about 120, you can see that in chapter one, they start speaking in tongues because the Spirit's given them utterance. And it it says in verse five, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem inside that particular town, Jews that were devout men. And as they're there, <clears throat> one nation under heaven, at this time, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So they're inside of a little, little room and the Holy Spirit drops down and all of a sudden it fills them all and they start speaking in lots of different dialects of Judaism. And you can see all the different dialects of Judaism starting uh, in verse eight and nine. How is this we hear in our, our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the sons of parts of Libya, Cyrene. So they, there's people walking by outside this room and inside they're speaking what would be the mighty works of God. It tells us that in verse 11, they're telling in our own language it's the mighty works of God. But these people, People that don't speak that language, they're actually all pretty redneck. Um, they're speaking with perfect dialect, the, the different languages of the people walking by. The people walking by, you know, they're just about their day and they hear inside this room all these people and all these different languages speaking the, the mighty works of God in their language, not in the ones that they speak, but in their language. And since somehow this, this work, this Coming of the Holy Spirit works itself out of the room into an open space. It has to be an open space because we know that later on in chapter two, 3,000 people get saved. So in some particular way, there's a gathering of at least, at least 3,120 people. Uh, and so they're all speaking in their languages. And as they're doing it, they're, they're telling the people that are present in their own languages. And th even though they don't speak it, they're somehow speaking and they're hearing it in their own language, the mighty works of God. And as they're doing that, verse 12, it says, and all were amazed and perplexed saying, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? All of a sudden, 
The filling of the Spirit has caused them to do what happened in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They have power now. And they're telling people. They're witnessing to the mighty works of God. But then in verse 13, you have a second category of people that are mocking. And they're saying, oh, they're just drunk. They're just drunk. Listen to them. They sound like babblers. And in that moment, Peter has a choice. He can cower away like he's done before. Or... He can stand up and preach, and he stands up and preaches. Verse 14, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So he stands up and preaches boldly. So keynotes to Peter's sermon. Keynotes to Peter's sermon. The first thing I want you to put It's coming. Come on. Come on. It was preached by a restored man. It was preached by a restored man. Now, when we were going through the the journey, we were going into the book of John at the very end, actually the very last sermon of 2015, we looked at John chapter 21 and we talked about the restoration of Jesus. I don't have time to unpack that entire sermon It probably was my favorite sermon of the journey. And I remember telling Jordan, man, I hate that fell on the Christmas between, uh, on the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's when we have like six people here. Because um, it was, it was like the spirit was really um, good that day in that particular sermon. But what we saw in restoration is a few things. We saw that we, we are to throw ourselves onto the mercy of Jesus as Peter did when he threw himself into the water and just started swimming even though probably the boat passed him and he's still swimming and like, good job, Peter. Um, he left his clothes on too. It was quite, quite interesting. Uh, but also, we see that restoration involves quit trying to prove yourself to Christ and just now rest in the good news of the gospel. There's no earning. It's resting. That's primarily what the good news is. And so in that, Peter's being restored by realizing there's no earning. And then also, as Jesus tells him about his future, He's looking forward to the future that he has with Jesus. Not just the work, but also the one day that he'll have with Jesus in heaven. And so here we see that Peter stands up and preaches because he's a restored man. Now, so as we're going through these these things that we're looking at the sermon, what I want to see is, do these things describe you? Because they can. It was preached by a restored man. You can also be restored. If you've walked away from God for a while, you can be restored just like Peter. If you've cowered away numerous times and multiple opportunities to make disciples, well, God can do a work in not just six weeks, but in six minutes, in six seconds. He can do a work in you. These things can describe you. Throw yourselves on the mercies of Jesus. Quit trying to earn a relationship and and realize that you don't earn a relationship. You rest in what Christ has done for you. His work, his finished work on the cross has accomplished for you the ability to rest in the fact that now you have a right standing with God that will never change. Your identity is not in becoming the greatest whatever. Your identity is in the fact that Christ is the greatest and he has restored you because of his death and burial and resurrection. So we see here first about this sermon that, Jesus, uh, that, G, that Peter is uh, preaching as a restored man. He stands up boldly and talks. This is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. The second thing is this. 
It's preached by an obedient man. It's preached by an obedient man. Acts chapter 1, 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here it is. You will be my witnesses. And in that moment, Peter had a decision. Am I going to obey the fact that I have to be a witness or not? And he obeyed. This is the actual first occasion, the very first occasion of that prophecy of, G, of Acts 1-8 being fulfilled. No one else had done it yet because no they had just received the Holy Spirit. So who's going to be the first one to be the witness? Peter stands up. Scared Peter could have run again, but he didn't. Instead, he obeyed Acts 1-8. He obeyed Jesus and he stood up and he witnessed. And in the same way, this can be you. You can obey the call that all of us have received in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 to go and make disciples, teaching them. You can obey it. It doesn't have to describe you as someone who's disobedient. It can describe you as one who is obedient. Peter was an obedient man. This sermon was preached by someone, though he had a history of disobedience, a history of running, he didn't anymore. And though you might have a history of not being good at making disciples or a history of just being disobedient to Jesus, you don't have to anymore. Now, read with me. Peter stood up with the 11, lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. I'm gonna read now from 15 to 24 and then we'll come back. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, hey guys, it's 9 a.m. <laughs> People don't get drunk at 9 a.m. And by the way, for those that try to make the case that in the Bible, R.C. Sproul pointed this out in his commentary, for those that try to make the case that wine was non-alcoholic, here's a, yet another proof. You can look at John 2, you can look at multiple places where wine in the Bible was alcoholic. That's why they think they're drinking wine and they're drunk because wine had alcohol. Back to this text. Um, they're not drunk because it's only 9 a.m. Most people don't do that. You know, guys that are mocking, verse 13 guys. And then he says this. He's gonna, prof, he's gonna quote the prophet Joel 2, 28 through 32. But this is what was uttered through the prophet. So he's going to explain to them, you think what's happening's crazy. What's happening isn't crazy. What's happening isn't something that you should mock or think that they're just filled with wine. Instead, if you knew your Bible, Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32, that particular text is being fulfilled and taking place right here. So if you don't know what's happening, if you knew Joel 2, 2, 28 through 32, that's what's happening right here. And so he says, it's not that they're drunk. Instead, as Joel told us, this is what's happening. And this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And on your sons and on your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. That's what's happening. It's that Joel 2 is being um, fulfilled. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and the great, the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that 
everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he explains what's happened in Joel 2, and then he turns it and he looks at them directly. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. So after he explains what's going on, I mean, this is so good. Turns them right to the good news of the gospel. As Christocentric as he can possibly be, points, takes them right to Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I mean, this is a major contrast, a major contrast from when he's standing by the charcoal fire and the girls are saying, aren't aren't you, aren't you with him? You sound like him. You talk like him. So what else are we seeing here? What else are we seeing here? Joel 2, we see this, that Peter as he stands up and they're receiving mockings, as they're receiving wrong um, things that are being said about them, and he says, it's not that they're drunk, it's only 9 a.m., but instead, it's Joel chapter two. This shows us something about Peter. This particular sermon was preached by a studied man. Not that he was being studied, that he actually studied the scriptures. He was a studier. He knew what was happening. The Holy Spirit had filled him and he knew what was happening because as he studies the scriptures, and this is the case with us, as we study the scriptures, the Holy Spirit takes as we study and uses us and interprets to the people what's going on. So Peter, because he had studied the scriptures, the Holy Spirit teaches, takes what's in him, what he, had, um, what he had studied up until then, and then Peter interprets it for the people. And he tells them, this is what's happening. In verse 17, the, whole, the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all of us and we're, we're prophesying. This prophesy means God is making himself known by his word. Luther says it this way when he's looking at this and trying to understand because we hear prophesy and we think, oh, I'm telling you my future, you know, like Miss Cleo rubbing my, shaking my eight ball and saying, it's gonna happen to you. Let me read my tarot cards. It's not that, all right? It's, it's prophesy as in, God making himself known by his word. Prophets in the Old Testament did that. They made known to the people what was going to happen. And when they did, they would say the word of the Lord and they would give it. So it's not foretelling as much as it's forthtelling. Straight, forward, bold telling of what the Lord says. We can do that as well by looking at his word and saying the word of the Lord says, because I have it in front of me, these are God's words, and then telling them. Luther writes, the knowledge of God through Christ, which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes burn through the word of the gospel. So that's what we mean here by prophesy. This means you can do that. This means you can do that. He was a studied man. He knew what was happening and he tells them, the Holy Spirit is being poured out. I wanna read you a Spurgeon quote that talks about a man or woman who knows the word. And as, every time I read this quote, it just gets me so pumped up to want to read and be in the word more. Be, as Peter, a studied man in the word. 
Oh, that you and I might get to the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eaten to the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over the surface of it, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts, but is blessed to eat it into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with the scriptures. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, he, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually make us feel and say, Why? This man is a living Bible. Stick him anywhere and his blood is bibline or biblin. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. I mean, I love that quote by C.S. Lewis. This is, I think, I would guess, if we're believers in Christ, the kind of men and women we want to be. We want to be so saturated with the word of God that when we're talking, we're just speaking the Bible. We don't even realize it, but our sentences are literally like texts of scripture. And I would say, this is who Peter was at this particular moment. He was a studied man. And you can be this as well. I want to be careful because I don't know your situations. And I want to be careful as your pastor when I call you or try to challenge you in an area that maybe repentance needs to happen. But I would say that we should not bleed Netflix. We should not bleed our favorite shows more than we bleed. I'm not... I know that there's room in our lives for fun and entertainment. I'm not trying to say there shouldn't be. We should have fun. God created fun. But we should bleed the Bible more than anything else. We should be studied men and women. Whenever we talk to one another, we should talk in sentences like the Bible. That's what's happening here. Peter boldly stands up and because he knew the word he says no no people aren't drunk you know what's happening Joel that's what's happening and then as he closes the Joel quote you probably noticed it from Romans chapter 10 verse 13 you didn't know that it was Joel 2 32 and it shall come to that pass right here everyone who come who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved now this is this is awesome This is Peter, as he's quoting, exhorting the people that are there, the mockers and those who are asking the question, what does this mean from verse 12? This is what it means. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, you people listening here, as I've explained what's happening, I'm telling you, call upon the name of the Lord 
and you'll be saved. This particular sermon was not only preached by a studied man, a man who studies, it's preached by an evangelistic man. A man who, in the moment, whenever it finally gets down to the brass tacks, after we've talked about what's happening, he looks at him right across the table and he says, what about you right now? Do you want to get saved today? Do you, you, you can call upon the name, everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How about you? Right now, this moment. Let's do it. He was an evangelistic man. This is bold. This is Peter offering the good news of the gospel and pleading with them because he cares about them to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation for them particularly. I think that we all know someone like this. And all of us, that person we know, we look up to like, man, they're so awesome. It doesn't matter what's happening. They get to the gospel with everybody they meet. It's unbelievable. I had this guy, Noah, in, my, in, in seminary. He talked, we ordered pizza and we took it to the school. And I'm, I'm just thinking about the practicalities of delivering it and trying to meet the students and stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm just about, get, I'm, I go over to Noah. He's already talking to the principal. He's already in the gospel, talking about Jesus. Like, Noah, man, how do you do? And Noah had only been saved for like six months. You know, I, I'm, I'm the professional guy. You know, I'm there at seminary. I've been saved since I was eight. And I'm like, Noah, man, how do you do that? It's unbelievable. I think that we all know someone and deep down inside, we think to ourselves, if I could be like that, I would, but I just don't know how. My grandfather, he's dead. He's been dead for a long time. My mom's dad, um, the stories that have been told to me by other family members is John Gates stopped and pitch up, picked up hitchhikers all the time. Now, this was back in the 30s in Mississippi, so it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't Crazyville like it is today. But he stopped and pick, picked up hitchhikers all the time, and... Whenever he did, he proclaimed the gospel to them every time and sometimes wouldn't stop until they asked Jesus in their heart. And th- I'm serious. What had happened is he would drive them and by the time this, the, the, uh, the drive was over, they had confessed that they, their need for Christ. What happened? Why would he do that? Because the gospel had changed him. Like Peter, the gospel had changed him. He got saved later in life. He thought he was, my granddad thought he was a Christian at 10 And then the preaching of the gospel one Sunday morning at like 38 realized he wasn't. And then the moment it finally clicked, he, and did not have to, did that for me? It changed everything. And he did not ever not talk about Jesus. With me, with anybody, it didn't matter. Every time I was around him, we were gonna talk about Jesus. And every time I was around him, he'd tell me stories about he'd pick up hitchhikers and by the time he stopped, they had become a Christian. I don't think it was the same story. I think it was happened a lot. But what happened is he had been changed. Six minutes for him. Six weeks for Peter. But this sermon right here was preached by an evangelistic man. But also, verses 20 through 24, this is the gospel. I'll read 1 Corinthians 15 to you so you can compare it to what Peter says, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. And then it tells us in verse 3, what is the gospel? For I delivered to you this gospel, what is first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for the sins, died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus is the good news. 
And that, that is the good news means the gospel. And here, after he tells them what's going on, he looks right at him. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. So if you need another place in the scriptures besides 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, you have it right here in Acts 2, 22 through 24. A beautiful, quick summary statement of the gospel, the good news, the person and work of Jesus. And he tells us. A man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Remember when Lazarus died and he was raised? Remember when you went back over to Lazarus and you're like, hey man, what happened? And Lazarus talked to you? You saw that. You saw a dead man start talking to you. Remember Jairus' daughter? Talitha, get up. And she's up. Remember over and over the healings? All the people, remember when everybody was hungry on the side? And he's like, yeah, just give me some fish and bread. We'll just, and boom, everybody's eating. Remember that? You saw all the things he did. And it's not just those things that make him the Messiah. These things are all pointing us to the fact that he is. And what he, has, what he will do for us. Mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, and here it is, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So before we think that whenever Jesus died, that it was some massive thing that was just took God completely you know, off, like, how is this happening? I sent my son to do these awesome things, and why is he dying? Remember, Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Here it is, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, in him, things in heaven and on earth. So the plan has always been, the definite plan of God has always been that he would give his son. So it was the absolute plan of God, the definite plan of foreknowledge that Jesus would go and die. And then Peter says, yes, it was always the plan of God that he would die. But men of Israel, it was at your hands. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But that's not the end of the story. If that's the end of the story, then we're done. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we're going to die. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death. Demonstrating that since death can't hold him, death has no hold on you. You will not die. You will, if you're in Christ, live forever with him. We will only die physically, but never spiritually. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the last one is this, is that Peter preached this sermon as a gospeled man. This was a man that spent all three years with Jesus. This was a man that saw his death. This is a man that experienced the resurrection. This is a man that was with Jesus 
as he was resurrected walking around in his new body. This is a man that witnessed the ascension. This is a man that saw the transfiguration. He saw everything. Peter had been restored by Jesus. And we need to understand, this wasn't like Jesus just kind of granted him a mulligan. Yeah, I know you took a bad shot, get another one. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel isn't a do-over. Restoration has to be blood-bought. And Peter's restoration was blood-bought. Peter knew full well the cost of his, res- of his restoration. It was his friend, Jesus' death. And Peter tells them, he knew the gospel. He was a gospeled man, a man that had been changed by it. He says, Jesus was killed and God raised him up. As John 3.16 tells us, a very familiar text, maybe one of the best texts regarding the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Peter was a gospel man. He believed in Christ. He believed in the gospel. And so do you this morning know the gospel? Do you know the good news? Not only that, do you know the king? Do you know Jesus? What he's done for you? I wanna close by reading and I won't do the justice of it. I invite you to go Google it later and hear the actual audio. It's just unbelievable. There's a kind of a portion of a sermon called That's My King by an African-American pastor. His name is S.M. Lockridge. And so as I'm closing, asking you, do you know the king? I'm gonna read his words to you and let him describe the king. My king was born a king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Now I'm wondering, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know my king? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there is no means of measure that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of the shore of his supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. No enduring strength. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. Do you know him? He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. Personality and he's unparalleled. He's personality and philosophy. He's the supreme problem and higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He's the carnal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. I'm wondering, do you know him? 
He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all of his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He discharges debts. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. That's my king. Do you know him? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of all legislatures. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of all governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his birth in his light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. That's my king. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm coming to tell you this, that the heavens of heavens can't contain him, let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't couldn't get their testimonies to agree about him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He has always been and he always will be. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There's nobody before him and there'll never be anybody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Thine the power, yeah, and the glory. We'll try to get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but all the glory is his. Yes, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. How long is that? Forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all the evers, then amen. Do you know this king? Peter knew this king. And it changed him. And he can change your life. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we worship. And I pray this this picture, this finite picture of the king that only scratches the surface of who you are and what you've done and the glory that you have would be in our minds as we worship you. And I pray for us now, God, as we go into worship that you would help us be restored men and women, obedient, studied, evangelistic, and gospeled men and women that want to live for you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to a time of response. I just ask that you would be obedient to the leading of the Spirit now. Stand, sing. Stay seated and confess, read some scripture, journal what the Lord's doing, and then stand and sing with us all. We've got some time here. We've got a few songs that we'll sing together. And as the Lord leads, stand and worship.